It is 27 minutes to 11 o'clock. You are listening to the Tuesday edition of uh, The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for uh, Kathy Motlachana this morning. Um, this hour, and this at least for the next hour, I want to focus on this very, very important conversation. Sterilization, forced sterilization, as well as at least the history thereof, as well as the relationship that we have, policy and culturally and otherwise, with contraceptives in South Africa. There's a particular focus on a particular contraceptive. And there seems to be very limited research in this space, except for an incredibly detailed uh, doctoral thesis uh, compiled and put together by Stembiso Promise Mtembu, now Dr. Stembiso Promise Mtembu, um, and her paper focused specifically on that. Her paper focused on identifying and answering, at least filling the knowledge gap in three particular uh, fields. One, to understand the framing of post-apartheid South Africa's contraceptive policy in relation to the purpose and objectives of the provision of injectable uh, contraceptives, but more importantly to explore how the current contraceptive policy is aligned with the national agenda and policy and resourcing for women's health in South Africa. Importantly, she's exploring how contraceptives enhances women's rights and autonomy in relation to reproductive health. As it stands, does the current contraceptive policy of the country enhance the reproductive health of women? Critically important question. Dr. Stemle, uh, Dr. Stembiso joins us on the line. Dr. Stembiso, thank you so, uh, uh, so much for your time this morning. Really, really do appreciate it. Before we get into the substance of what was your paper, let's start with the backstory. Let's start with your backstory. Uh, where did this all start for you and why was it that this is what you decided to make uh, focus your PhD on. Uh, good morning, and good morning to the listeners of SAFM, um, and, and thanks for, 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 for the opportunity to uh, talk about my uh, PhD thesis uh, today. Um, I came um, in, into uh, contact with... Um, what I regard as the politics of reproduction, uh, really. Uh, mm. And must I say, racialized politics of reproduction because of my uh, personal experiences. Um, I, I was forced uh, into sterilization when I was 22 years old um, uh, uh, as a young woman uh, living with HIV. Um, you know, and as I, I continued to engage uh, with this issue beyond the personal, um, looking at uh, the political, yeah. I then began to realize as to where it was coming from, you know, both for sterilization, but uh, like at a bigger scale, uh, what I would call uh, population control uh, of black uh, and poor women uh, around the world, but also in South Africa specifically. Yeah. The, as they say, the personal is political and the political is personal. Um, and so there's a definite intellect over there. Let's let's just unpack your story a little bit more and ask, because for me, it's the question is, how prevalent is it? A young woman um, who's HIV positive and forced into sterilization. What was the rationale there? OK, yes. Yeah. The, the personal is political indeed. Uh, and I'm, I'm loving your <laughs> 
you know, your, your, your feminist politics, um, you know, as it were. Um, well, the, the, the rationale, um, you know, the answer is I, I, I wouldn't really know because um, it is the doctors who are doing this um, and there's no medical requirement for them to sterilize women in yeah. other ways. That, you know, forcibly sterilizing someone does not change, you know, lives and it doesn't contribute anything really uh, apart from humiliating that particular individual and also apart from, um, you know, uh, expressing the principles and values of eugenics, which is about limiting a particular race or particular people from reproduction, uh, which then, you know, goes into political or racial or colonial um, and in our case, also apartheid uh, population uh, management. Because when you look at where uh, contraception and sterilization is coming from, you know, particularly the use of the Sopovera, its origin is the United States of America, you know, and it was introduced by, you know, eugenics in collaboration with the state uh, of the United States, the government of the United States. States. And the goal really, this was in late 60s, early 70s, the goal was to reduce, you know, up to capping the population of black people in America, particularly African Americans, because they were beginning to be problematic, really. Mm. You know, you then have, you know, women like Margaret Sanger, who is celebrated in public health as a champion uh, of contraceptives, you know, but she's not, you know, she was a eugenic and racist who you know, went further than talking about it and started to, you know, basically do it in a particular uh, community, in black community in the United States. And she was, you know, funded under the guidance and reporting to the eugenics um, movement. They initially used the Procovera, which is really a drug that was being developed for cancer, right? And then they discovered that this particular drug can also assist um, in keeping population of black, mostly poor women. You know, then it was registered, you know, under very, you know, sort of concerning circumstances, the registration was safe, you know, and, you know, basically flouted most of the rules of SBA uh, for registration, and mm. they began to use it. So it was used concurrently uh, with sterilization, you know, so basically... If you escape sterilization, you then, you know, get um, the, 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 the injection. Um, you know, and, 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 and it, you know, sort of continued, you know, it will be deregistered because a particular ideology in medicine will come in and say, you know, it, it, it's wrong, uh, it has side effects, you know, and those side effects, you know, by the way, have not changed, you know, but then other forces would come, you know, on board and reinstate it. Um, not only in America, but in some European uh, countries mm, mm. as well. Um, so I, I'll talk about the side effects, um, you know, of, of you know the propovera and some litigation. You know, yeah. Before, be, yeah. yeah. Before we go into the, uh, I, I guess we can say anatomical makeup of this drug um, mm. that was particularly used and and the politics around it itself, right? And I mean, mm. bringing in the FDA does necessarily make this particular drug a politicized right uh, I, I I want us to rewind back a little bit um, and, and 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 speak to um, you know and, and and speak to some of the things you identify in in, in your problem statement uh, that the post-apartheid South Africa 
regime had to take a particular approach um, that presumably would have been rooted in the enhancement of basic human rights to be able to counter this in particular relation to uh, contraceptives. When women were being forcefully sterilized, black women, poor women, women with HIV, it was done out of uh, the understanding that they're less than human, um, that we need to control their ability to populate. We need to control their uh, uh, ability to reproduce. Um, and we need to limit it, right? Um, and that's the state exercising control over the reproductive bodies, uh, reproductive organs of women. What then was the approach of the uh, post-colonial and post-apartheid South Africa? Okay, yeah, before I get into that, you asked me about the, the, the you know, the, the, the rates of HIV-positive men that have been sterilized. Yeah. Um, the answer is, um, we do not know, but what we do know is that a human scientist, scientist research study, which was looking into HIV stigma index in 2015, uh, it was a national representative study, is that it found that 7.4 of HIV-positive women, black and poor, had been forced into sterilization. Um, you remember that we have more than 4 million HIV-positive women uh, in the country, so we're talking about a couple of hundred uh, of women. The same study found that 37% of HIV-positive women had been forced into taking Depo-Provera, you know, and that basically says that mm. the government policy is very concerted, very well-funded, that is ending fertility uh, of HIV-positive women. Mm. Mm. Um, so with regards to post-apartheid South Africa, um, you know, the foundings uh, of my study was that uh, the ideology, you know, that they are using is similar to the ideology that was used by colonial um, and apartheid uh, government. So basically, nothing has changed, right? Mm. And then, yeah, so and let, let us look at the colonial um, and, and apartheid, uh, you know, ideology and policy. So forced sterilization in, in particular, I mean, obviously it came, you know, through America, and you have the colonial government, the Union of South Africa government, who, you know, began to create the foundation for it. And their issue was um, the increasing black population, particularly in urban areas, and also what they were referring to as the poor white problem. There were, you know, many poor white people, you know, particularly Africaners, that were beginning to be too close to uh, the black people. So they were worried about the development of this mixed race. And they also they were ashamed um, of white people, you know, and they thought something that has to do with genetics. So if you are white and poor, you'll also be forced into sterilization and also contraception. Mm, but in the name mm. of black women in urban areas. I mean, uh, and then obviously the apartheid government went further into codifying a policy and investing a lot of resources into sterilization and also forced contraception of, of black women. You have, for an, and this policy was codified in 1974. They call it a women's health policy. Sometimes it's called population, uh, you know, policy. Um, you know, and I mentioned women's health because, um, you know, and then there were like specific clinics in urban areas that were women's health policies, mm. like singular service clinics, and they still exist, right? You know, and I say women's health and population control because all these clinics, and then even to this day, forced contraception is still called 
women's health or reproductive health, that we have all these policies. I mean, for an example, in AIDS, they're talking about integrating sexual and reproductive health services into HIV. But when we look closer, the only thing that they're integrating is contraception, mainly force and deprovera into HIV. So, so this is what happens in the transition um, from apartheid South Africa to the South Africa we see now. Yeah. I, call it post, I call it post-apartheid in my study, you know, but I think I've changed because of influence. I think it's more post-1994 school. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a <laughs> subtle difference, but it's important. Because <laughs> uh, I could have changed it, but then when the business came, yeah. ethical, I, I had ethical clearance, so I really I, I had to move <laughs> with that language. Because <laughs> uh, a good friend of mine often says, apartheid never ended; it was just privatized. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it seems to me, though, and as uh, 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 saw that this started for you from a position of activism uh, before it was a position of academic exploration. Yes, indeed, it started. Yeah, uh, from the position uh, of activism, and I think you know that remains because I, I took the you know feminist uh, approach uh, of research, so the personal is political. You know, and your research is really to inform uh, the movement. You know, it's not like an academic exercise way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where it started from. It it came from a place of anger. Yeah. I'm allowed to say that. No, I mean, anger is useful. Anger is morally righteous. Anger is a tool through which we express our humanity. Give us a call. 011-714-2006. I want to ask you this as, as, as a listener right now. Do you know anyone that's ever been forcefully sterilized? I, I'm asking this because yesterday when, when I was having this conversation um, with, uh, with Lebu as well as Kanya, the producers, it blew my mind just how big of a deal this used to be. That it was just okay that people knew that women were getting forcefully sterilized and life just went on. I, it, it's just something that never popped up in my world. And I want to ask you, do you know of someone, or are you perhaps a woman that has been forcefully sterilized? Give us that call, 011-714-2006. Give us a, well, you can send us a WhatsApp voice note, 614 um, and let us know if, if, if this is, uh, um, you know, a story that resonates with one of your own, a story that is close to home for you because it speaks to your existence, uh, perhaps as a black woman, as a poor woman, as a woman who's living with HIV, um, and and or a woman whose reproductive health has been completely disregarded by the state and its functionaries. Give us that call. O double one seven one four two thousand and six. Stem. So I want us to move to this for a little while. Um, some of the analytical tools through which you, you that you used to look at the problem, but also look at uh, what should what is a fitting policy approach, right? And you mentioned feminist theory. Now, feminist theory itself is not static, right? Um, I mean, if we look at um, radical feminist theory today, if we look at black radical feminist theory, um, if we compare that to, say, third wave, post-third wave uh, feminist theory or whatever that was going on in, I don't know, uh, the 80s and 90s around feminist work then, right? The, the, the uh, you know, epistemology of feminism has itself moved with the time. Um, and so there's, it's often hard to pinpoint one single feminist theory tool through which to view a problem. 
what did, how did you settle that that dilemma for yourself? Yeah, a dilemma indeed. Um, yes, yeah. Um, okay, so I applied feminism, you know, as, you know, as you're saying that there are different terms uh, of feminism. Um, I obviously couldn't apply one theory, I mean, as you say. Uh, but the theory, um, like I, I used more of political uh, economy, uh, you know, theory, and I also applied post-colonial and uh, intersectional, you know, feminist theory. Um, I started with the political economy because I wanted to look um, at a global level. Uh, you know, why do we have this situation right now, you know, in, in a post-developmental you know, world? You know, and I also was very mindful that, I mean, in a neo-colonial and neoliberal, you know, uh, economy, you know, there has to be something there. Mm, um, mm. You know, and, and some of the findings I found is that, I mean, prior to us, you know, even, you know, getting into, uh, you know, independence, de- decolonialization, you know, this thing had become a matter of international relations and aid, right? You know, there were big organizations that were formed, you know, to drive this agenda. I mean, for an example, the Population Council, you know, the IPPF, you know, and others that were getting funding directly, you know, from the U.S. state, mm. right? And then now, um, at a global level, you know, today, um, at a WHA, uh, WHO level, for an example, and UNFPA, the United Fund for Population and Development, WHO, you know, WHO sets the rules, you know, the like the regulation rule, you know, of your contraceptives, vaccine, medication, and 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 and, and, and so on and so forth. So one of the findings uh, was that uh, WHO gets 10% of its annual budget, its core budget, you know, from an organization called, um, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates um, uh, uh, Foundation, yeah. uh, a philanthropic uh, organization, you know, that is giving money to WHO. You know, and this money, you know, increased, um, you know, the, the, at the time when, you know, Bill Gates, um, you know, the, the business side of it, you know, began to, uh, you know, have an interest in vaccine and also contraceptive. And they bought shares uh, in Pfizer, who is um, a U.S. company that is, you know, developing contraceptives amongst many uh, other, other drugs. And what happened with this money? So it's a ten percent and other endowments, you know, which they give to WHO. Um, and they, you know, I would say they are also in charge of vaccines in Africa. So what happened with this money? They then, you know, basically took over the contraceptive policy making of WHO. You know, WHO and the world, the developing world, you know, as it is now, they implement some policy which is called SP. It was SP2020, now it's SP2030. You know, and basically this is a, a, a contraceptive policy um, that was, you know, it's initiating, it's funding, uh, and the implementation is led by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation yeah. and other donors, UKA, USA, and others. You know, so this is the source at a global level. You know, you then have UNP, UNFCA, who facilitate the, the implementation of this policy in developing countries, and also UNFPA, who is leading what is called contraceptive procurement, uh, you know, network. You know, so they, you know, facilitate procuring. South Africa buys these drugs. Other developing countries who are poorer than us, 
you know, get these start drugs, you know, as aid, and you know the politics of aid, right? You know, so that is the, 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 the global level, you know, and then you find that, you know, this drug, it has been litigated against, you know, in the U.S., in the U.K., and other countries, you know, so it's partially banned in the United States and the United Kingdom, right? You use it under very strict, you know, conditions, but partly because of litigation. But it is the main drug that is used in developing countries and South Africa. You know, it accounts for like 90%, right? Mm, um, mm. And also, um, it, in South Africa and developing countries, it's not only being used, it's also developed in other formulations. For an example, you have the implant now, which will last for three years. You know, you have vaginal rings, and that is developing another one that you can use at home. You know, so it's different formulations of the, the Popovera. So they are increasing, you know, it's, you know, you know, access, you know, and you still have the philanthropists who are, you know, basically in charge. Um, so litigation, um, most of the litigation has been around side effects, you know, rather than racial. The most recent one uh, was a class action which was settled in Canada in 2021, you know, and this litigation was, you know, about the implants, but focusing on side effects. And side effects have remained static, as in they have not been efforts to improve them, right? So these are the side effects, you know, the, the prominent ones. So if you look at the map of, 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 of Depropovera, it's similar to the map of high rates of cervical cancer, you know, and this is because it affects the cervix, you know, the, the vaginal, you know, lining and so on and so forth. Since uh, the beginning of HIV epidemic, you know, there's been, you know, scientific research that is coming and saying the map of high rate of HIV in women is the same as the map of the Popovera, right? So it decreases the vaginal lining and it has hormones, you know, and those hormones increases what, you know, the opportunities for women to acquire HIV if they have, you know, sex with men. You know, and there's a politics of that research as well because there was a Heffron study which confirmed it, but WHO could not make a policy that they take this thing off the shelf and give women safer options because there are safer options. You know, there are, you know, tablets, and tablets are the safest in contraception. So, know, so, so I, let me understand this right. It's, it's starting to make sense to me now a little bit. Depovera is a, it's, it's a contraceptive. But so poorly put together and so poorly researched uh, that the side effects are incredibly severe that they often turn into um, reproductive health being compromised. Exactly. To the point of sterilization. Um, Yes, yeah, as opposed to sterilization because the two go together, right? So side effects, so cervical cancer, high rates of HIV infection, weight gain, uh, which would develop to, you know, uh, Depropovera, depression, and, and then also the thinning of the bone marrow. Uh, I always make an example. Sorry, is, Temiso, is this drug still in circulation? Yes. Yeah, it's the most used uh, uh, contraceptive uh, in the country. And as I mentioned... In South Africa? Into other, oh, yes, yeah, country South Africa. They are developing it in other formulations. To expand, uh, so not just action. injectable, so also you can take it in the form of a pill or whatever the uh, other form they might be able to configure it in. 
No, no, no. It's not in a form of appeal. They wouldn't give you a appeal because if they give you a appeal, if it's in a form of appeal, remember the appeal gives you power, you know, because it's mostly false. The appeal gives you power. You can take a appeal or not take it at home. Right. So it is an injection which you get, and it also comes in a form of the implant, you know, the stuff they insert on poor women's bodies yeah, yeah, yeah. for three years. Yes, yeah. And they are also creating another formal... Which is Do we know how many South African women are currently on contraceptives, specifically Depovera? Um, it would be 90% of poor women who are taking uh, uh, contraceptives that would be on Depovera. You know, and it also, you know, targets, you know, poor black young women and women with HIV, young women uh, in the main... I mean, it could have been aware of like a case uh, of uh, school girls who were forced into taking contraceptives. You know, there was a lot of media awareness around that, but that matter did not yeah. get to court. Yeah. We would have been aware of medical students in Guadalupe Natal, for an example, that were accessing, um, you know, bursaries. Yeah, school uh, bursaries uh, to study in Cuba. Yes, yeah, and the MEC for Health here, yeah, you know, it was policy that. They also, they get the popovera so that they don't fall pregnant uh, in, in, in Cuba. You know, so it's mostly used, um, you know, and it's highly, 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 um, uh, it's, it's highly, highly not recommended that young women under the age of 35 take this particular drug. You know, in fact, it's banned, you know, in, in, in many countries, but young women in South Africa are taking this. And, and, and why is it that it's not banned in South Africa? Do you know? Um... I think it's a, you know, a, a colonial issue and the fact that the ideology and why it is provided has not been challenged, but it's also about not valuing the lives uh, of black poor women in this country. Uh, it's also about, you know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you that you that you're specifically speaking about the the value of poor black women not being uh, uh, um, prioritized, because my next question is. Do women of other class and intersectional sects of society use different uh, contraceptives in the main? So that's to say, if you're a white woman, relatively affluent, that you would use, the chances are you'd be using a far different contraceptive. Is that the case? Yeah, if you were a a, a white uh, woman um, and lived in South Africa prior to 1994, you would not be getting Depo-Provera at all. You would also not be forced into sterilization. You would be encouraged to have more children, right? Wow. And if you are a black woman, middle-class woman today, and you use private health services, it is highly likely that you will not be using Depo-Provera. I think it's, um, you know, available in, in private uh, sector clinics. I, I think it's less than 2% of wow. Depo-Provera that is available uh, in public health, um, you know, clinics. So they are safer contraceptives. Yeah. You know, the pill, you know, there's a two-month uh, injection. Um, you know, there are loop. Uh, you know, there's a, another one where you can... Yeah, I do want us to spend some time talking about what the alternative is, right? Because contraceptives should be something someone should access if they want to at any given time. But what does the alternative look like that's safer and doesn't subject women uh, to these sorts of side effects that can render them uh, their reproductive health severely compromised? Give us a call, 011-714-2006. Heidi in Lipalala, I'll be taking your call very shortly. But right now, let's take a break and take the news. The Talking Point on SAFM Weekdays, 9am till midday 
Oliver Dixon on SAFM. It is 8 minutes after 11 a.m. this morning. You are listening to the Tuesday edition of The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, and I'm standing in for Kathy Mushashana this morning here on The Talking Point. If you've just joined us, you've missed an incredible uh, first two hours of the show. But right now, we're in conversation with Dr. Tembi Somtembu, who is who put together a PhD doctoral uh, dissertation uh, focusing um, on contraceptive and forced sterilization, the history of forced sterilization in South Africa, as well as contraceptive policy uh, in the country, with a focus on a particular drug uh, that I just learned about, and it's blowing my mind that this is allowed. Its existence is real, and it's allowed. It blows my mind. Give me a call, 011-714-2006, if you'd like to participate in the conversation. I'm going to go straight to the lines. Heidi in uh, Le Palale, thank you so much for holding on for so long. Um, but what's 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 your comment or question? Hi, Oliver. Okay, um, I just want to comment that I do know someone in my neighborhood that has been forced into uh, sterilization. And I believe it's because she's got a mental illness. So she just gets off with every man that comes and she's got three kids and four didn't survive. So that's the one person that I know of. Oh my goodness. That's what? She had four kids and three didn't survive. Three three are alive and four didn't survive because she just neglected them. She just gets off. When she comes back, it's most probably that time when she's due and she yeah. delivers and you mentioned that she has a mental illness. Is is this a commonly known thing, or is this something you know that your information you're privy to? No, it's commonly known. Wow! Oh my yeah, goodness, Haley, thank you so much for your call. Really, really do appreciate it. Um, uh, really do appreciate it. Stembiso, uh, is there a history of women with mental illnesses also being forced into sterilization specifically because of their mental illness? Yes. Um, yeah, it is in fact uh, another group of women which are forced uh, into sterilization um, in, 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 in South Africa. Um, you know, and I like the fact that she's talking about her children uh, passing on. You know, we don't know why their children are passing on, but one of the reasons that their children they are passing on, similar to HIV-positive women, is yeah. maternal child uh, mortality, which also can turn into uh, maternal uh, morbidity uh, in women. You know, this can happen because uh, of medical reasons, but by and large, it happens because, you know, this population of women, because they are discouraged from reproduction, they're excluded from the institution of motherhood, they will first face more violence and delays in delivering, uh, you know, the, the, their babies, so there will be complications. Mm. Um, I, I have a, a daughter with cerebral palsy uh, myself. She's an adult now. And, um, you know, one of the very first things, you know, that I was advised, you know, to do when she reached poverty, uh, puberty, is to sterilize her. You know, and within my organization, her rights initiative actually has been approached by group uh, of women living with disability to say, you know, you've taken your agenda, you know, this far as HIV positive when you are forced into sterilization. Can you also um, assist us? You know, so I agree, women with disabilities are targeted for sterilization in the country. Um, you know, which is one of the reasons, you know, I felt that 
the intersectional um, feminist approach yeah. uh, in my study is important because it will unearth, you know, all these other, you know, identities of marginalization and disadvantage beyond just the race. Mm, mm. Yeah. Give us a call, 011-714-2006. We're taking your voice notes on 0614-104-107. Let's have a listen to some of your voice notes. Oliver, good morning. My name is Iona. I'm in Cape Town. Um, you know, I don't agree with forced sterilization, but we really should be educating, educating more and more our women. You know, last week I listened to your radio station and there was a woman who was protesting. She was on strike down at the mines. She was asking for the thousand rand increase in wages. And she said, she said she's got five children at home and she has to feed five children. And I think she wasn't, uh, she was a single mother as well. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm, I've been a single mother with one child for a very long time. My son has grown up now. I can't imagine what it must be like to have five children and um, be a single mother. So um, um, don't you think we should be helping and helping our women out there to educate them not to have too many children because um, in order to, to, to give our children the best, we can't if we have so many children and life is so expensive. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, do you want to? Do you want to? Oliver, good day. Did you look at the people and the organisations involved in the whole scenario of forced sterilisation and the drugs that you guys are talking about? Could you could you do yourself a favour and look at the players in that specific environment? You can draw your own conclusion if you want to. But it's very telling. Even most people, especially the government and the rest of those players, would like you to believe and would like to admit. But look at the players and then you'll understand why it's happening. And if you go to the history of those players, current and previous, that's even more telling. But like most, the media doesn't want to look at those. Okay, I, I want you to respond to, uh, to that first voice note. It's a very common perception that poor people should not have children or not too many children. Not quite sure where they draw the line. Um, and oftentimes in the South African context, when it's poor people shouldn't have children or too many children, it means black women shouldn't have children or too many children, Right. Um, because the class condition is racial and the racial condition exists out of a class disparity. Do you want to speak to that? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I believe that poor um, and rich or middle-class women should choose their reproductive you know, trajectory. Uh, they must make choices. Uh, independently, you know, and indeed contraceptive work, you know, for certain women, you know, and contraception does not have to be medical, you know, and then, um, you know, the idea of using uh, poverty to target poor women for, you know, controlling or taking away their reproduction, 
I mean, it comes from a theory which is called Machiavellian, uh, you know, theory. You know, and basically this theory says that having more children uh, leads to poverty, you know, rather than saying that colonialism, this possession, leads uh, to poverty. You know, so if it says having more uh, children leads to poverty, then it's going to cap uh, reproduction uh, of the poor um, and um, uh, encourage reproduction, you know, of the rich. But also, you know, it's purpose from my perspective you know, its purpose is then to silence, you know, how neo-colonialism, you know, um, you know, disposition of people actually, you know, affect, you know, people from the countries that are colonized, you know, colonized in the past and also colonized, you know, right now. It silences the real sources uh, of poverty, right? You know, and then you also have to look into reproductive desires. You know, I argue that reproductive desires of rich and poor women are the same. Women reproduce, you know, because of self-expression, which is about life, you know, the genetic desires that I want to leave, you know, one of my, you know, own. You know, and also poor women reproduce more because they are looking for security, right? Uh, you know, security now and in the future. You know, so a woman would say, I'm having a second child because the child that I already have might die because of high rates of, you know, child and mortality, which they see, right? I'm having more children because, you know, I don't know what will happen to them and who's going to look, you know, after me when I'm older. I need more children so that they assist me with working, you know, the soil. I'm looking for the sign, sign because of patriarchy, you know, and if I have you know, five daughters and I don't have the time, I might lose my piece of land and or my marriage. You know, and it is a similar situation with rich women. Look at why the royals, you know, uh, you know, reproduce, for an example. It is about socioeconomic uh, security. You know, and with regards to sick women, you know, disabled women reproducing, you know, you know, a significant number of rich women have mental health, you know, problems, you know, for whatever, you know, reason. But they are not targeted for contraception. Yeah. You know, and yeah, they continue to reproduce, uh, you know, as, as they deem, uh, you know, fit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want us to turn to, uh, as, like I said before, you we went to the news there. I want us to turn quickly uh, for a little while to speaking to the contraceptive alternative uh, that should be available for women um, outside of life-threatening drugs. What are, Do we have a crisis of options or are there sufficient options relating to contraceptives for women, uh, particularly disenfranchised women? Mm. Yeah, I, I, the answer is that we have a, like a combination, uh, you know, of both. But the options that are available are not, uh, you know, promoted. Um, you know, and investment in those is also limited. You know, and also research in safer contraception has also been limited. You know, so you you have a pill. Um, you know, I'm not going to mention uh, all of them. Yeah. You know, and the pill seems to be the safest of contraception. You know, and the problem with the pill, you know, because remember. The ideology behind it is not to, you know, allow her to express her rights. The ideology behind it is to control and end her fertility, right? So I have power over the pill. You know, a doctor, a nurse, or whoever can force me, give me a pill without my consent, but I have a right, a choice of whether I use it at home or not. But with the injection, I do not have that particular right, right? Yeah. 
you know, there is another injection. It's called Neristarate. It's a two-month uh, injection, a lot safer injection, uh, you know, but it's hardly available in public health services, and it is available in public health, um, you know, services. You know, when I was doing my study, for an example, I interviewed, like, you know, people across the spectrum, you know, and I interviewed um, a, 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 a member of parliament who also chairs, who was chairing the health, the portfolio committee on health, you know, in a public hospital. And this particular individual had been an MEC for health in one of the provinces. You know, and he was saying he does not understand it. Well, now that he's an MP, because within his portfolio, he was actually providing the safer contraceptive to private sector. So the Department of Health would purchase these and, you know, supply them to the private sector, but not to, 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 to ordinary people. You know, and indeed, I've spoken about, you know, the fascination and with the Popovera that, you know, the, the, uh, the biomedical sector, you know, is interested in developing the Popovera into different forms. You know, there are mega studies that are developing it into different forms rather than exploring other formats. And this is where, you know, the economic interest, you know, comes in to say, you know, maybe the drug company that produces the Popovera is more powerful, you know, than the others, you know, and it has a history, you know, it has captured, you know, researchers, for an example, because of funding, you know, and the division of labor that you find that, you know, the registration would be, you know, in a northern country, you know, but health systems research and bio and, and behavioral research would be happening uh, in, in, in development, developing countries. It is in charge of contraceptive at a WHO level, mm. you know, so there is politics, you know, but, the, you know, there is also, like, the resourcing uh, of science, not just in the Popovera, like in women's, you know, health in general. For an example, when you look at HIV, you know, they are things called microphysites, you know, that are supposed to protect women from HIV, and women will be in charge because these things will be in their bodies, you know, and there is very limited research and money, you know, particularly money and research interest that is going uh, into this. Yeah. You know, so you have, yeah, the, the, the forces, you know, both political, economic, and also biomedical research forces that are yeah. playing here. Mm. Yeah. Let's take some of your calls. Give us a call, 011-714-2006. We had Bushi Lebuakomo, who we just lost, but let's go to Colin in Cape Town. Colin, good morning. Good morning, good morning, and good morning to the doctor. Do you know, I agree with that uh, one caller, education. Now, you know, we've, we've got people like your doctor coming on radio talking about this and that now. Now, where are the educators, the social workers, to go into areas and educate people? And as far as I'm concerned, I don't know where she gets her stats from. Um, the whites normally have two to three children. I myself, my wife had two. I couldn't afford any more. I get people coming to my door here daily with three little children looking for a piece of bread. And I tried to tell her, I said to her, you know, you've got nothing. And what, what's the future of these little three children you've got now? No, I know, I know I made a mistake. But you cannot bring children into this world if you cannot afford it. That is selfishness. You are thinking of yourself, just yourself. Because you'll, be, you'll leave this earth and those children will grow up with nothing, nothing, nothing. And even the middle class, top middle class black people in this country, 
they've also, they've got the money, the people have got good jobs. They are not having six, seven, eight kids, children. You know what I mean? So these people need to be educated. They need to be educated from small. Okay, thank you so much for your call, Collins. Thank you. Capes, I really appreciate it. Uh, Stemmy, so without wanting, having to repeat uh, your earlier comment, um, you want to maybe speak, in a, and I think this is something that we, we that I want to round this conversation off with, is bodily autonomy. Uh, because this all comes down to that, right? It's about empowering women um, to make decisions about their own bodies however they see fit. Um, and uh, however that allows them to self-actualize. But oftentimes, policy or otherwise, uh, the bodily autonomy of women is limited severely, even when it comes to having children, right? Oftentimes, women carry children they otherwise would not have wanted to necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, emergency contraceptives often aren't available for women who are raped uh, because most women do not uh, report rape cases is what we know from stats um, and even when they are they treat it with the utmost disdain and so oftentimes women carry children that are as a result of rape or as a re- result of many other things that fell outside of their control this seems to be particularly prevalent amongst the disenfranchised um, is there a relationship between that and again people seem to want to speak to the amount of children poor people should and shouldn't have but is there a relationship between that and the amount of children uh, that poor people have middle class people have and well off people have yes indeed um, yeah there is a relationship you know to that you know so you know the poorer you are you know the less control you have you know on body uh, autonomy you know and remember the oppression would come, the control of your body would come from the state, you know, but also, you know, from society. You know, the relationship we have with society as a poor, you know, black woman, rooted in patriarchy, you know, and, and rooted, you know, in what I would call misogyny, um, you know, if you like, right? So the system, you know, is pushing you, you know, the direction that is pushing you down, you know, and also the society, you know, is in a way, you know, doing the same. You know, and, and addressing, you know, the fact that uh, middle class and rich women are having fewer children, you know, the term seems to be that the higher you are educated, um, you know, the less fewer children that you will have. You know, and what this tells us is that if you educate the women, if you give women resources, you know, women will have, you know, lower, you know, uh, less number of, of, of children, you know, and you reject this idea that there is poverty, at, you know, because of higher rate of population and so on and so forth. You know, then it comes to, you know, education, right? Educating uh, the women. You know, of course, women must know about their contraceptive, you know, choices, you know, and they must be expanded. I mean, for an example, it is highly unlikely that you get a morning after period contraceptive in a, in a, 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 a public, you know, a clinic or hospital, for an example. You know, and, and remember, you know, why would a, a woman be on a three-month uh, contraceptive or on a three-year contraceptive if she's not in a stable, you know, relationship, for an example? Mm. You know, you have access to abortion, which is legalized uh, in the country, you know, but tell me about one billboard that is promoting, you know, abortion in this country. You know, go to the National of, uh, Department of Health budget and look at how much are they investing in abortion. 
So it is a right that is on paper, but it is a right that is not promoted and or uh, funded. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, and also you must look at the division of labor about which people must be educated and which people must be uh, educated, you know, on rights. What has happened, and I think it's one of the reasons we are where we are today, is that ordinary people have been turned into, you know, public health evangelists, you know, where they educate people and encourage people and condition people for taking, you know, health services without applying the critical, you know, mind into those services and without looking at where they are coming from and what is the, the purpose uh, of those particular services. You know, and the last point, because I'm looking at the time, is that, you know, let us repoliticize uh, contraceptives. You know, let us bring them back into the political space. Yeah. Because the post 1994 transition left them out. This is where we are now. You know, the ANC, the nationalists, rejected feminism, you know, as, as a tool of analyst, analyzing uh, oppression, and they say it was racial. You know, and they challenged, you know, the women activists that were there in the National Women's Coalition, you know, and the women's league, you know, uh, women. You yeah. Know, and all oppressions of women, including forced sterilization and contraceptives, you know, were passed on into post-apartheid, you know, South Africa. You know, and indeed, it was going to target HIV-positive women because the next problem post-1994 was HIV. So, yeah. health, public health contraceptives are political, you know, and you must stop this business of silencing them, you know, and treating them as public goods. Absolutely. They're not. Yeah. Absolutely. Dr. Stembiso-Mtembu, thank you so much for your time. Um, your your paper is publicly available for anyone who'd like to read it, yes? Yes, yeah, it is public, uh, publicly available uh, on the University of KwaZulu-Natal's uh, website, the research team. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. Um, uh, that is Dr. Uh, Stembiso-Mtembu. Thank you so much for your time. It's 11.30, time for your news headlines.